Good morning, Debbie. Well, hello. This seems to have worked out just great. Yeah. yeah. We've had some trouble connecting. We can spare our listeners all of the ins and outs of that. <laughs> uh, my, my technical problems uh, are never uh, my most entertaining anecdotes. I can tell you that much. That, that's right. We can put those in a footnote in your memoirs. <laughs> if at all. If at all. <laughs> well, welcome to A Life in Biography. Of course, we're here to discuss your new book, Madam, about Polly Adler. Why don't we begin by your telling listeners a little bit about uh, your previous work and how you how it came about that you wrote about uh, Polly Adler? Uh, well, uh, it, they are. Uh, it's, a, it's a good way to start because they couldn't be more different in many ways. My two subjects. Uh, my first book, uh, The Most Famous Man in America was a biography of a once world famous and uh, now somewhat forgotten, although I'd like to think my book brought him back to life a little bit, uh, forgotten uh, celebrity minister, uh, a guy named Henry Ward Beecher, who is mostly remembered for uh, being the little brother of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, he was an abolitionist. He came from a famous uh, Congregationalist family in New England, sort of the last of the great Puritan ministers, was his father, Lyman Beecher. Uh, and he went on to be a notable abolitionist, a notable gadfly in political and social matters, but he was almost brought down from his high perch uh, by a sex scandal. He had a massive megachurch, one of the very first celebrity megachurches in the United States, maybe the first in Brooklyn Heights, and he was accused of sleeping with one of his parishioners. It made for a great topic, actually, in a lot of ways, uh, and I did pretty well with it. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed it, although I am no Puritan, so it took me a long time to get my mind into that mindset, uh, and, but I was never going to write another book. That that was as any biographer who might be listening will is probably nodding their heads. It is a lot of work. Uh, it is a lot. I take a long time. I probably I probably spend too much time researching because that's the part I like. Uh, but then the book went well, and I think it was like um, it didn't just go well. As I recall, you won what was that award? <laughs> I won the Pulitzer Prize. That that was that was a shock. That was a definite surprise, uh, and I think I it was a little too flattering, to be honest. Also, I think uh, I think I don't have children, but my understanding is the only way you have a second child is by by having selective amnesia about how hard it was to give birth to the first, <laughs> and but. Between the flattery of the Pulitzer and my amnesia, I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll write. Maybe I'll just look at another topic. But uh, it was too dumb to stay with what I already knew. I spent my first 20 years in the 19th century, but for some reason I thought, let's go to the jazz age. Won't that be fun? So something sexy, something scandalous of a different kind. Uh, and uh, well, now I now I feel foolish. But I spent the next thirteen years on a new topic that I discovered: uh, a woman named Polly Adler, again like Beecher, once very famous, uh, infamous, in in during nineteen twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, New York City, uh, and uh, and who had a very high profile career as a madam uh, procuring prostitutes for the city elite uh, and, and their visitors uh, during the jazz it's during from 1920 to 1945 i it seemed like a good idea at the time but it required a huge leap in my imagination to move from puritans uh, to prostitutes and and ministers to madams and and that was partially what took me a long time just to uh, stop thinking of people as at least wanting to be saints and realizing that, no, no, people can also be unrepentant sinners as well. Hmm. So where did you go for information? Well, I found the, the, the thing that lured me in onto the uh, primrose path 
was a little book I found while uh, cruising around uh, the bookshelves at the in the Yale Library. I was looking. I was looking at books in the 1920s section, and there was a little slim red volume that I pulled off the shelf, and it was Polly Adler's 1953 memoir, "A House Is Not a Home," um, which became a, a uh, two million selling book, a big bestseller, sold over two million copies. It was uh, turned into a movie in 1963, uh, 64. Not a very good movie, uh, actually, really a terrible movie uh, starring uh, Shelley Winters. Uh, but she had basically been forgotten, much, much like Henry Ward Beecher, actually. And uh, but I could tell that this memoir, it, it included all kinds of gangsters and politicians and big events of the day. It, it, and in that sense, different as uh, a character as Polly is from Henry, uh, they had a similar kind of Forrest Gump quality that they, the people, they seemed to know everyone and they seemed to pop up at kind of all the hot spots of the time. Uh, and it turned out uh, that she was shockingly well-documented. Uh, she appeared in newspaper, uh, tons of newspaper stories, tons of newspaper um, co gossip columnists uh, covered her, her avidly. Um, and so the papers were, of course, one of those fabulous uh, sources. And as I wrote the book, um, a lot of newspapers came online to be digitized. Uh, that, that was another thing that took me a long time. More stuff kept appearing. Uh, but it turned out, uh, in terms of my other sources, th there were two, two things that were really notable. Um, one is the, the muses clearly wanted me to do this book. I don't know why uh, that would be the case, but the <laughs> gods had decided. And over and over again, I kept having crazy fortuitous um fortuitous discoveries. And I'll, I'll, I'll go back to that in one moment. But the other thing I want to say is that it also turns out uh, that people in the criminal world, you would think of much harder to document. They live lives of secrecy often. But in fact, uh, people who have contact uh, with uh, the legal system are often much better documented than the average American. So that she turned up in the New York Municipal Archives in their arrest uh, docket books. Um, she turns up, she has a large FBI file. Uh, she comes up in all sorts of bureaucratic ways that uh, you might not expect because, uh, because in fact, the law and the, the powers that be were trying to keep track of her, which that that, that was actually a wonderful discovery, uh, a surprising, uh, serendipitous, uh, ironic discovery. Um, but the, but to go back to really the the un, unforeseen and perhaps undeserved good fortune, I discovered uh, the three major resources. Uh, one was uh, a the, Polly had a ghostwriter for her uh, memoir, a woman named Virginia Faulkner, brilliant writer and editor. It's one of the reasons the book was so good. Um, and I discover this is early on in the internet age. Somebody just posted something saying, hey, I found this suitcase full of letters and writing notebooks uh, by this woman named Virginia Faulkner about writing a book about this woman named Polly Adler. Does anyone know what it's worth? Well, it was <laughs> nothing to anyone else except me. Uh, and the fellow uh, who found it, who wants to remain anonymous, he uh, he kindly copied it, the whole thing for me. So I had, oh. uh, I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you, you can just imagine any biographer listening. I literally, my, my whole body was surging with excitement. I practically was jumping up and down when I talked to him. Uh, and although I was trying to play it cool, because, you know, because you never know what people are going to do with their sensitive old documents. So that was huge. That had the lists of many of the names that could not be used or that had been cut out. And there was a lot of back and Fourth correspondence, trying to tease out stories that Polly had either whitewashed or did not want included. So that was huge, and that that taught there were gangsters. That was one of the great lists of things. There were also discoveries uh, like um, the fact that uh, the actress Dorothy Lamour had gone on dates uh, for Polly at one point. Little things like that that are of course huge when you're doing a project like this. The, uh, there were two other major things that were really wonderful. Um, Polly 
left, uh, she did not have any children herself, uh, but she left a fairly substantial estate, uh, including two trunks of memorabilia uh, that she had kept over the course of her life, uh, programs and newspaper clippings and scrapbooks and photo albums and reel-to-reel tapes that she had made uh, when she was trying to work through her writing her memoirs, um, all kinds of material, uh, many, many signed books from all the writers that she knew who, who were also her customers. Unfortunately, uh, and this was to my mind, uh, in a book filled with many unfortunate incidents, this was the one that really got to me. Uh, when she died, everything went to her last surviving brother who had been very ashamed of his sister's career despite taking her money uh, and letting her support him for a good portion of his life and mm -hmm. everyone else in her family. Uh, and he, but in his shame, he threw away a lot of that material. Uh, uh. But some of it was left. Some of it was left and someone had saved it. And so they also allowed me uh, to go through all that material. And that was huge. The last, the last fabulous piece of good fortune, oh, not the last, there were so many, uh, is I became friendly through, again, God bless the internet, with a distant relative of Polly's who was just becoming interested in uh, genealogy. And over the course of the long time it took me to research this book, she became a master genealogist. Uh, and uh, Samadar Goboa, I got to give her great credit. Uh, she uh, connected me with other relatives who talked to me about Polly. Uh, and she did that kind of digging work through the bureaucratic archives that even as a trained historian, I, I don't know how to do quite all of the stuff that genealogists know how to do it. Anyone who knows that will tell you that's a very specialized area. And it, it made all the difference in the world. Uh, and we became very close friends. So, I mean, that if, if, if we want to talk about research, that's all I like to do. We can talk yeah. about research all the yeah. time. It's my favorite it's thing. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's very frustrating. I agree with you about genealogy. I have never attempted to trace genealogy. I've always relied on, you know, someone who really is going to save me a lot of time because they know the ground, they know the territory. And there's so many tricks of the trade. Uh, there's so many byways and, and details. It's, it, it, I mean, it really, that, that alone. And it's always a delight to have somebody else taking this journey with you, you as, as everyone That's right. knows, you know, yeah. it can be a lonely business uh, being a biographer, yeah. uh, as anyone will tell you. Now, I have to confess, Debbie, I've read your whole book. Oh, uh, and after listening to you too, uh, my disappointment is it seems that you yourself have not had to turn to a life of crime. <laughs> Well, any more, to be honest, than I became a dedicated Christian either. Uh, you know, maybe there's a tourism quality to my my interest in other people. Uh, you know, I, I, it's funny, I do not have, I guess people who like to live in libraries do not have a, a, a taste for uh, drama and risk. Uh, even the idea of being at, at risk of arrest uh, does not... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> makes me a little nervous. Um, but, but it was interesting because, of course, as I was saying, I had worked so hard to understand the mindset of the Calvinists that it, I had really found that was where I was coming from. So it took me a long time to change up uh, my mindset the way, the way uh, so that I could see how she might conceive the world in a, in a, of course, the opposite ways. And, and especially, I'll tell you one thing I spent a ton of time on uh, was gambling. A lot of Polly's world is filled with gamblers. Um, the big bookmakers and bootleggers of the early 20s who were making so much money were her very earliest customers. They're the ones who catapulted her into notoriety and prosperity as a madam. And, uh, and everyone seemed to gamble around her. It just I, I don't know if people still gamble that way, uh, I possibly, because we now have internet gambling. But it, to me, it was very, it was as hard to understand as being a Calvinist. And, uh, and I still, to this day, 
don't care for gambling. It makes me nervous. I don't find it fun to put money on the line. I don't know why you would want to, but I, I found that I came to really enjoy the company of gamblers and the culture <laughs> of gambling. I, I did start going to the horse races up at Saratoga when I, I got a, um, a residency at Yaddo, the famous arts colony, during the month of August. And I, I tried to work on my book, but I also tried very hard. I felt like it was important for me to immerse myself uh, in the world of playing the ponies because that was a big part of her world. I think you said um, it took you 13 years to do the book. Yeah, it, it could, we could call it a little longer, but I think calling it a baker's dozen is the most respectable. And I think, you know, what you described, what you had to do is partly explains why you took that long. Are there other reasons? Uh, maybe I uh, didn't hold myself to a high standard uh, in that uh, it is certainly true that my editor was saying, hey, how about how about year five? How about a year seven? <laughs> uh, and in that sense, uh, perhaps I took advantage. Maybe it's not that I didn't hold myself to a high standard because I think I wanted to write a classic, in yeah. all honesty. I know it sounds immodest, but I wanted to write a classic book about the jazz age and about jazz age Manhattan because yeah. it is something of eternal fascination to Americans. And I, and I, I guess I was probably that Pulitzer Prize was what gave me the sort of uh, <laughs> it's a, not not a screw you attitude, but a, hey, I'll 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 do it. I'll be there. And I think it's what allowed my fabulous editor Jerry Howard to go to his bosses and say, just give her a little more time. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately. He retired a week yes. and a half after I yeah. turned in the manuscript. Literally, well, he, he was right he up did, to the line. Yeah, he did something worse to to me when my wife and I uh, did our Sontag biography. He was the acquiring editor, and then he promptly uh, quit uh, W.W. Norton well, <laughs> and orphaned us. <laughs> Exactly. So, Jerry, you have a lot to answer for. Well, exactly. And and I I'd say I'd be I'd be a little more annoyed with him uh, for having his own life, I guess. Uh, except that he in his his new retirement is now writing a biography of his own uh, got of the critic, the wonderful critic. I'm a big fan of uh, Malcolm Cowley. Yeah. And uh, and you know what? Turns out he's not finding it so easy either. So, yeah, he uh, said, gee, I didn't realize how hard it was to write a biography. Exactly. Turnabout, <laughs> turnabout is fair play. Yeah, I have to, I can't resist telling you this. Um, years ago, uh, there was a panel at the National Arts Club of Biographers. Uh, and uh, there were three uh, biographers and a fourth, uh, Frederick, the late Frederick Carl. And uh, each of them was talking about his or her book. And one biographer had taken, I think, five years to write the book. And another had taken six or seven. And I think the third one had taken 10 years. And uh, Fred Carl was the last speaker. And he said, well, generally, it takes me about three years to research and write a biography. Wow. And he looked at the other biographers and he said, I guess you have bad work habits. <laughs> and I I don't want to cop to that, but I have to. I do think uh, I, I am a terrible procrastinator. And so I am one of those people who uh, fiddles around all morning and then finds myself working late into the night. Because, of course, uh, once you start working on a biography once you get through i mean it's so much it to be it is so much fun even the writing which is never my favorite part is is mostly fun uh i have what i call it uh thresholdism uh like standing on the edge of the pool you know once you just dive in and start swimming you'll warm right up and it'll be a pleasure and then i don't want to get out of the pool i'm like a little kid uh but it but getting into the pool i spent an enormous amount of time just sort of dithering uh before jumping in and i do think that's i do think your your author was probably correct well I mean, this is a whole other issue, but I've always been amused at the way biographies are reviewed. And often if uh, someone has taken a decade or even two decades, 20 years in the making, 
Uh, I remember Gail Levin's uh, biography, uh, one of her biographies took that long. Uh, reviewers are very impressed. Whereas <laughs> if you turn out a biography like Fred Carl does, or, or, or often I have, and every three or four years, they think, you know, uh, well, as one of my colleagues once said to me, she said, Carl, are you thorough? <laughs> it's we all work different ways for different that's, reasons. That's very funny. Uh, well, I you know that you are speaking to an issue that I talked about many, many times with my agent and Susan Rabiner and my husband, who's my biggest booster, and which is, and Jerry, which is, I was like, by the end, I was embarrassed that it had taken me so long. Mm. There were definitely people who assumed, who have now told me, they assumed that it just hadn't gone well and they didn't even want to ask me about it anymore because they figured nobody would still be working on that. Uh, And I was embarrassed that it it really took this long, in part because I do know maybe my work habits could have been better or I could have been more dis disciplined about saying, no, enough research. You don't need to know every detail. Um, but everyone said, no, 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 that's a selling point. People will be yes. impressed. And yes. so I do think, you know, I, I have some ambivalence about the length of the book. It's 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 no longer than my first book, but the print's a little bigger. And I footnoted even more than I did with the Beecher book. And I think it's because I had something to prove. Uh, you know, uh, I felt sort of in my the back of my head that people are going to treat this world as, it, it is full of myth. It is yeah. full of, of glamorous stories that don't really have any root in real life and, and people exaggerating uh, because it's such a, it is a glamorous and it is a, um, a not just a glamorous decade, it's a gritty, or decades, uh, it's gritty and gra- glamorous and it has become part of our national mythology, this era of flappers and gangsters. And Well, I have something to say about the structure of the book, but I don't want to say it right now because it has to do with, with the way the book ends. Well, um, I, let's we can move to that because I was getting to, I was going to say the way the book ends is with a hundred pages, well, uh, footnotes and and yeah. bibliography, and it, I'll tell you what it makes the book so much heavier to lift. It makes it look so much more daunting, <laughs> and biographies are already daunting enough uh, that perhaps I should have been more disciplined about cutting uh, a little bit more. But you know that's the other problem with taking so long and doing so much research that I wanted to create a full world. To me, I'm I feel like I'm more of a historian than a biographer, mm-hmm. uh, than a biographer. And I like using this was true of the Beecher book and true of Polly that I like using a central figure as a way to be a lens on the wider landscape. And especially with Polly Adler it felt like the context had to be brought to life because, because well, with Beecher, here Beecher was a classic protagonist. He was authoring his own destiny all the time. He was off having adventures and, and responding to things in the wider world in a way that was more straightforward, more Joseph Campbell-like, if you will. Whereas yeah. Polly, you know, Polly is a handmaiden in power. She had plenty of power of her own by the time she retired, but her power was drawn from her relationships with other powerful men and other uh characters who would go on to help create much of what we know, many of the actors and actresses and musicians and culture creators and uh, ad men and Hollywood uh, you know, types who would go on to create American culture, did a lot of their early experimenting in the playground of her brothels. And without knowing about that, without knowing who they were and without knowing a little bit about, say, the transition from vaudeville to radio to uh, Hollywood as the dominant uh, cultural forces, you wouldn't you wouldn't care about these her it, because you wouldn't be able to know. And so I think I probably, in this case, made the book even more of a history than uh, the first book. Well, I think it was I think you're right. I think it was necessary. You needed that context. Um, I'm going to keep readers in suspense because I want to say something about the ending of the book. But before I do that, <laughs> without giving away too much about the ending of the book, uh, before I do that, uh, there, there's something about your subject herself that I, I want to talk a bit, I want you to talk a bit about. And that is the fact that she was Jewish. 
mm-hmm. and that she was an immigrant mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what difference that made. Well, it's, yeah, of course, quite a different, um, quite a different milieu. She was born in 1900, uh, more or less. She was never entirely sure uh, when she was born. All the records uh, that of her birth were destroyed during World War I and, and the fires and all the, the, the vagaries of Europe during uh, the early 20th century. She was born in a small Russian uh, shtetl. Uh, in what is now Belarus, but what was then part of the Pale of Russia. Uh, And she comes over to the United States in classic immigrant fashion in 1913. Uh, The biggest difference is, and this does relate to her being Jewish, uh, specifically is uh, like many people, uh, like many immigrants to the United States, her family could not afford to all come over at one time takes quite a bit of money and resources to get out of, <laughs> to get yourself across the ocean. Uh, so uh, what her father decided was, uh, as, he, as she puts it, he, he was going to send them over in installments. And wh- what was different here is that usually that would, the person in other cultures uh, to go, the first person to go, who's going to make the money to send back for the rest of the relatives, uh, is a man. It might be the oldest son, or it might be the father. Uh, but in the Jewish culture, because uh, traditional Jewish culture puts such an emphasis on learning, um, on men learning, quite frankly, the, the, it, women, w- women were not encouraged to study the Torah uh, or to uh, learn Hebrew. Uh, but men, that was considered the highest calling you could have is to sit all day and study, study the good books and the commentary. Uh, Polly desperately wanted an education. She desperately wanted to be a somebody, as you might say, a mensch uh, of, of stature uh, and, and wanted to go to school. Uh, but like a lot of women, she, uh, in, in that culture, women uh, often ran the businesses uh, that while their husbands would study, uh, the women would run the, if they had a little business in the marketplace or if they had a stall in the marketplace or in her case, in Polly's case, her father was a tailor uh, and her mother was what they called a, a balabusta uh, in Yiddish. She could run a warm and welcoming home. She was a great cook, uh, but she also could do math. She also uh, spoke a number of languages and knew how to deal with people and manage an enterprise. And Polly had all of those skills. And it it translates to the United States in an interesting way because, so she comes first all by herself in 1913. The family's about to follow. And then all of a sudden, six months later, uh, World War II comes, excuse me, World War I comes and shuts down all travel. And Polly is left here. So she's having what would be almost a classic immigrant experience, uh, she comes to, to Ellis Island. She is sent to live with family friends. But then all of a sudden, fate turns her in a different direction. And she is basically here alone, uh, a 13, 14-year-old girl uh, among strangers. And that is how she ends up uh, deviating from the standard immigrant story. Um, what's interesting uh, is that, of course, that's a generation where there are a lot of a lot of criminals in the early uh, 20th century are exactly like her. People who came over as young children or slightly older children uh, and find themselves trapped between the cultures with no supervision and no uh, not enough resources. And they are the ones who often become the the bootleggers or become the prostitute. Yeah. And in Polly's case, in Polly's case, she becomes a madam at a time when Jewish women are, uh, Jews make up about 20% of the population in in New York City at that time. Uh, And, but they make up 50% of the madams in, according to statistics, uh, estimated statistics. And why? Because unlike other women from other cultures, they have this tradition of being the balabusta. The, uh, she could run a, a cozy home that people would want to come and uh, hang around with their girls and spend their money on the at the bar and on her food. Uh, but she could also be a hard-headed businesswoman who could save money, who could keep records, uh, and like many Jewish women of the time. And so th- that was a huge part of her success. Yeah, that's what I wanted you to say, because I think not only is the, the tradition of the Balabusta that goes back to the old world, 
but I just want listeners to imagine this Jewish woman coming over and uh, she doesn't, she finds that she can break barriers, right. that there won't be the old world restriction. She already knows that women are the ones who get the business done. But now <laughs> she realizes any, you know, whatever it's going to take to survive and, and thrive, she'll be able to do that in this country in a way that she couldn't have done in the old world, no matter how, in a sense, successful she was, she could have been there. Well, and it's it's interesting because she definitely was already, like so many young, ambitious people, was ready to leave her little shtetl to begin with. She, yeah. was, she just didn't know that it was going to be across the ocean yeah. and taking so many uh, left turns. You, you know, she was... Uh, as a, so I, as a biographers, we all know this, this dance that we do or the equations that we work out, which is how much of things are environment, how much of things are inherited, uh, and how much of things are just the, the spark of genius that individuals bring uh, to their lives. And she, had, she just had a lot of strength of character, which sounds odd to say, since she was indeed a lawbreaker, a dedicated lawbreaker, a, a, a member in good standing of the underworld. But she did have a lot of character. She was very trustworthy. She was very discreet. And boy, did she have uh, moxie and stamina. It would be the, the number of times that she gets beaten up or gets run out of town yeah. or is harassed or, you know, also, good Lord, the... the uh, the double standard, you know, that she had Vanderbilt's, she had Jock Whitney was one of her regular clients. She had, uh, she had some of the biggest politicians in the country coming through her place. Uh, and yet she knew very well that if they ever saw her out, out of doors, uh, that she'd be snubbed, uh, maybe even pursued by the very same people who would come to her parlor. And that, that always bothered her. That, that yeah. always bothered her deeply. She, she reminds me of the mother of one of my subjects, Norman Mailer's mother. Oh, that's who, interesting. Who was not a madam, <laughs> but who went to Long Branch, New Jersey, Yep. started a resort hotel, mm -hmm. brought her sisters, cousins, mostly women, and they made this business. She also lived in Brooklyn and had an oil supply business. What did her husband do? Unlike her father, who had been a rabbi in the old country, she married this really sporty guy, uh -huh. Barney, Barney oh, yeah. Mailer, who was a gay gambler yep he kept losing the fortune yep. and she kept making it back again yep yep ex exactly that is a i think a quite common story although it sounds like she might have been a little more successful than the average yeah. uh yeah. but uh yeah it it really it, it you know for men it was definitely a switch to come to the United States and realize, oh, I'm supposed to be the one uh, yeah. making all the money. <laughs> not a, yeah, and it is another reason why I don't. I like I like being around gamblers, but as I many times while writing this book, I would just look up and turn to my husband and say, "I would never have married you if you were a gambler." And he would he just what? Why? Why are you? What are you telling me that for? I was just because just like that story. I just yeah. you know that idea. Well, and it's funny because so Polly brings over her all of her family and speaking about that double standard they are happy to take her money she supports her parents in particular um, the, but also helps with her brothers and uh, and getting them settled and helping them with money uh, but to the end of her life her at first they didn't know what she did for a living but at a certain point Polly's notoriety becomes so great and she becomes embroiled in a bunch of uh, municipal scandals and so she's in all the newspapers and there's a murder that she is implicated in uh, that also gets uh, national headlines um, eventually they do learn in the 1930s what she does for a living, uh, and they were deeply ashamed, uh, and even as they were happy to take her money. And that led, this dynamic with her family, led to what was probably the most surprising moment uh, in the whole my whole experience here, which was I knew that I knew that politicians had made up a lot of her clientele, 
uh, as uh, one crime reporter says, you know, big time politicians are would I would say uh, the best of the best customers in New York City between the wars, if it weren't for the bootleggers who have more money. But of course, the bootleggers and the politicians like to meet up in Polly's parlor. It's a great place to do business, uh, do illicit business and transfer bribes and that sort of thing out of the way of prying eyes. Um, but uh, and plus, it's it's uh, for anyone who wants to be bribing a politician or have some control, or even if you're a, a salesman and you want to have a little bit of an edge over your customers, or uh, you're an ad man who ad agent, you know, uh, that having a having a prostitute, knowing that you paid for that prostitute for for your target is like, it's not, it can be blackmail. I mean, it can, it can lead to a subtle, sure. subtle form of blackmail. So she knew, she knew, I knew she had a lot of politicians. She was always very proud of, um, she, she was very discreet, but she would tell anyone, uh, well, certainly she told the FBI, Jimmy Walker, mayor, the jazz age, jazz mayor of New York was a big client of hers, as was Walter Winchell, a very longtime client, those she would brag about. But at the very end of her life, uh, I'm talking to, I find, I don't talk to that many um, real life people. I'm afraid of writing about real people who are still alive. Uh, it makes me nervous. I, and I'm always afraid of, I'm going to overstep or do something wrong or, or uh, get in trouble, I guess, or get sued for heaven's sakes, if we're going to be fully clear about it. Uh, but I did talk to a few people who were elderly and who remembered Polly. And one of them, had been a very young man in his early 20s when Polly was in her late 50s, uh, mid to late 50s, and uh, he knew her when she'd retired out to Los Angeles. And they became friendly. Uh, she was very involved in the gay community, uh, both in New York City and in LA, uh, which in LA uh, was really centered around Sunset Strip and the television industry. Uh, the early television industry was uh, a, a refuge for a lot of gay people in the industry who uh, felt they couldn't work in movies because movies had higher prejudices. Um, anyway, so she she knew this young fella through those circles and they, they were driving. He was driving her somewhere one day and she says, he, he's just he's just telling me this over the phone, this uh, lovely older man, he was in his 80s at the time. And, uh, and he says they were driving one day and she says, out of the blue, uh, would you introduce me to your mother? And now she's already older. She's feeling quite a lot of um, quite a lot of chagrin and humiliation because she's having every publisher in New York has turned down the manuscript for her memoir. Um, but even more than that, uh, she is brooding about the fact that her family still feels so much shame over her. So he says. Well, of course I would introduce you to my mother. Why wouldn't I introduce you to my mother? And she says, well, I find it interesting because my own mother will not have me at the Passover table because she's ashamed of me and of my profession. And so she'll take my money, but she won't have me over at the holiday table to celebrate, uh, to celebrate the passing, uh, you know, to celebrate Passover. And so she's obviously, and he's in, she, then she sort of stops and she's still brooding. He can see. And she then all of a sudden says, you know, uh, I knew Franklin Delano Roosevelt. I, 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 he was one of my customers, which, so he was shocked, when, when, <laughs> as you can imagine. Uh, I was probably even more shocked because, you know, it's one thing to have the jazz mayor of New York. Uh, nobody was going to be surprised if Jimmy Walker is spending time with her girls. But FDR, I mean, the, the St. Roosevelt, for gosh yeah. sake. Uh, and so I started I say, well, how did she say it? Like, what, what was, you know, how he said she was just very matter of fact. It was as if she just had to tell somebody, you know, I was important. I am important. Mm. I, what I, I'm as respectable as some of the most respectable people in the world. If you want to be completely honest about things, which of course we don't, we don't like to be completely honest about those things. So I, so he, I said, did she say anything more? He said, well, she said she, uh, because that it had been important for her to keep her mouth shut when Roosevelt was running for president. And so she was to the end of her life uh, being paid off 
by prominent Democrats for her silence. And that's all she says. They kind of drops. So of course you want to know another reason why this book took so long. I probably, if you add up all the hours I spent trying to get a bead on, did did she actually have (laughs) Roosevelt as a client? I've probably added a whole extra year onto my uh, tally. Uh, And I will say this, uh, I, I have to say up front, I never was able to prove that. However, there was a lot of circumstantial evidence and uh, including, including as most biographers know, sometimes you have to be a peeping Tom. Uh, you have to be a, a terrible nosy body. I went into his sexual uh, and uh, and medical history, trying to figure out, well, could he in fact right. have had, and indeed, and indeed he could. He, yeah. he, that, uh, that was a moment where I was like, well, I'm never gonna know for sure, but at least I know this, that man could, uh, that man enjoyed fellatio. So there we are. <laughs> okay, well, now we're getting to it. Uh, why you decided to write a dirty book. Um, but uh, I, this really brings me to, to my, my last question, um, which is about the ending of your book, which I think is one of the most impressing, impressive endings to a biography I've ever read. Oh, Carl, you, I'm, I'm, I'm practically tearing up that, that, <laughs> well, saying that. I'm not kidding. Thank you. Well, it, it, the, the thing is, it's a wonderfully told story. Uh, and you learn about all these cultural personalities, and it is a work of history, as you say. But when you get to the end, you're getting to your subtitle, Icon of the Jazz Age, and you spend a number of pages talking about, in our culture, who gets to be important. Right, right. And that's, that's what sets your book apart. I think, and that's what makes it history as well as biography, is you talk about the significance of that and why her story, people in general maybe know, uh, some people will know who who Polly Adler was, but why it was so important to her to think she was important and for you to write about her as an important subject. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that. Well, I thank you for saying that. You have no idea how much that means to me, uh, Carl, because I know you know this business better than anyone. Um, so I, your judgment really matters to me. Um, I can say this. I, I was very stymied. I'd, I'd gotten to the end. I didn't need a lot more. I just needed maybe two pages. I mean, you, we all know when you get to the rhythm of when you're in the rhythm of a book. Okay, this is this. I don't need a lot. I did, but I did not have an idea of what to do. I just honestly, I was really completely blank. How am I going to end this? Besides, I, I I did. I worked. I got up to the point where it's, here's this. Here's what people considered. Here's what her fans thought was significant about her. Here's what her foes thought was significant about her. Here's how her memoir also changed things. And I could do that because that's basic historical accounting. Um, uh, 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 but but then, you know, you got to, you can't just abruptly say, so there we are, you know, and, I, <laughs> and so she's dead and then she was forgotten. Uh, and I, I spent, uh, I, I talk about procrastinating. I, I would just, well, I spent a couple of weeks and it was there in my calendar, right? The last two pages. And I finally, and I talked, I, I tried a million different ways and uh, talked to my agent, talked to my editor, just anything. And I finally realized yeah, it is. The question for her would have been, listen, I did all this extraordinary stuff. It was incredibly well documented. I wrote this huge best-selling memoir that people considered a significant contribution to understanding the sexual revolution and shaking up uh, the mid-20th century ideas about sex, uh, on par with somebody like Dr. Kinsey's uh, report with on women or Simone de Beauvoir, uh, who published this, the also same year, uh, the report on women, Kinsey report on women and Simone de Beauvoir's second sex come out the same year that Polly publishes her book. It's a tsunami of people rethinking female sexuality. Uh, it is also notable. Hugh Hefner uh, founded Playboy uh, that uh, same year. Polly, Polly read uh, the Second Sex and the Kinsey Report and approved heartily. She did not say anything about Playboy. Probably wasn't going to be that impressed. Uh, 
But I think she wanted to know in her own mind, if she were here, she would say, why do we all know about Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky? You know, why are we all obsessed with movies like The Godfather and The Good and Goodfellas? But nobody wants to have an icon uh, of, of a sexual outlaw who's female because we are very uncomfortable with those ideas. And we still suffer from the double standard. And there's still something... Uh, we can heroicize sociopaths, you know, who deal drugs and 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 booze and who kill their rivals. But we we get very um, discuss easily disgusted uh, and easily thrown off by uh, people who use sex as their weapon against the world. And I and really thinking about it, I was like, okay. I, if that's the question, let me say a little bit about that. But then realizing part of the reason is. Okay, part of the reason is historical. We don't like the we we have that double standard of talking about sex. Part of and we have the double standard about women. Not we don't care for our women to be criminals, uh, but really it's also Polly's own fault. She kept so much to herself. Uh, there were things she didn't even admit to herself. I think about her own life, uh, and there was if she had really told all she knew she would have pride of place in American culture. So for me, um, I know, I am sure there is stuff that is not in this book of all kinds, things that would be truly shocking, truly revise our understanding of American culture that I could never get my hands on. But I felt like at least I was doing some of the work that she wanted me to do. Uh, at that, especially at that ending of, of saying, well, you know, we'll never know because we don't like to examine the mechanics behind our fantasies. And if there's ever a period that involves glamorous fantasies, it's the jazz age. Um, I will also say this, though, because this is a late breaking news item from this week. <laughs> um, it, once it, about in, soon as I get off of this uh, call with you. I am going to speak to a man who just contacted me via my website, because now the book is out, uh, saying, hey, I have the original manuscript typed up with notes from various readers written in the margins of Polly's 1953 memoir, House in the Oh, Rome. boy. And, I, of course, my first response was, now you tell me? Where the <laughs> hell were you, you know, two years ago? Or even yeah. literally a year ago I could have used this. Uh, but uh, I, so I'm very excited about it, even though, of course, like all biographers, sometimes you just want to close the books and say, no, no more information. I am dying to know uh, what is in there. And I'm. Uh, it's possible that there is stuff cut out of there that uh, would really change my interpretation. I hope not, but I kind of hope there is too. Well, maybe the paperback will have a, an <laughs> yeah. addendum. Well, yeah, because it needs to be longer. That that's <laughs> I, it does need a little extra. It's not. It's you know. You the problem is you can actually lift the book now. Uh, you can't hold it for long periods of time. You have to rest it on your chest if you're really going to read it. Uh, but you know, yes, you're right. Little addendum. Or you could do the ebook edition where there's no weight really involved. Exactly. Exactly. I I'm I'm still uh I'm still an old fashioned paper kind of girl. Yeah. But yeah. I can I'm starting to see the value of yeah. uh, digital copies. Yeah, yeah. That that's one value I think for the really huge books. The other thing about this ending I want to say too is that um, another biographer, and this is often what bothers me about reviews of biography, is they review it as if it's just a story. Yeah. Uh, and the biographer is incidental. Mm -hmm. Another writer might have made very different choices from yours. Uh, another biographer. For instance, I can imagine a biographer front-loading some of the stuff you put at the end of the book, which I think would be a mistake. I think you, you made the right move. Because it's it just when you, when you end your biography, it's like... <gasps> You know, wow, you know, suddenly the canvas is opened up uh, in, a, in an extraordinary way. And to put it at the beginning would be to just throw away that. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I So my first book was, uh, it started disastrously because it turned out I had not the slightest idea how to write a book. And especially a biography, but a book of any kind, despite having a PhD and having studied about uh, having uh, Henry Ward Beecher as the subject of my dissertation, very different ways of writing. And I had no idea what I was doing. And 
as a result, after turning in the first two chapters to my then publisher, uh, my, my book contract was canceled. Uh, and rightly so, frankly, I do not blame them. The problem mm. was I had to repay back the uh, the advance. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I had to, I couldn't just drop the project in shame and go get another career. Although maybe that would have, that wouldn't have been crazy. Uh, but uh, so I had to rewrite the book. I had to rewrite those chapters. I had to resell the book. And I did not have the slightest idea what to do. So I started, and this is, this is back in the early 2000s. And there was not anywhere near the amount of material out there about how to write narrative nonfiction and how to write biographies. I mean, very, very little, uh, to be honest, because I, I looked thoroughly through the Yale library because I, I live in New Haven uh, for material to help me uh, with that. And, I, and, and to help me think through, what am I doing here? What is the whole point of writing this book, writing any book? Why, what am I asking of readers? And what do I want? What is my goal? And I finally realized that my goal was to get the reader to read the next sentence, read the next paragraph, to turn the page and read the next page. I know that sounds almost too basic, sort of flippant, but no, that really was, I thought when it comes right down to it, that's what it, that's what I'm, my goal. My goal is to have them continue reading. And how do you do that? How do you get people to continue reading? I finally realized, well, it's, it's suspense. And mm -hmm. what is suspense? It's wondering. I wonder what happens next. I'm literally just that. I wonder what happens next. Let me read the next paragraph to find out. And so I went and checked out a bunch of books about how to write thrillers and how to write mysteries. And that that was when things broke open. And I, I still do sometimes exercises that I uh, adapted from some of those books. Uh, and so when you talk about the idea of not putting something up front, uh, that is classic uh, mystery 101 uh, rule, which is you give the reader only enough information to make them curious, not enough to sate their curiosity, because otherwise, okay, I got it. Thanks. I don't, <laughs> I don't need it anymore. <laughs> uh, the other thing about the ending was I am well aware as somebody who uh, has written reviews and who uh, has had to skim through a million books uh, looking for the stuff that is important to me and who has also, uh, I will say, uh, read a lot of books for prize committees, having something at the end that explains why you bothered to read this book. And what is the, what's the whole point? Boy, does that make a reviewer's job a lot easier? Oh, thank yeah. you. I'm just going to quote. <laughs> and I figured if nothing else, people will look at the front and they look at the back. And so we better leave it on a strong footing in the back and let them held the, let teach, tell the reviewer, this is why it matters. And then maybe they'll just take my word for it. Yeah. Well, I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Well, as I say, I've got the footnotes to back it up. That's right. Well, thank you, Debbie. This has just been wonderful. Uh -oh. uh, and I'm going to let you go because I know you've got somebody else to talk to. Very excited. Uh, I'll, yeah. Listen, uh, if, it's, if it's really explosive, I will report back. Uh, but Carl, it is um, an honor. I'm such a fan of your podcast. I'm such a fan of you. You are, Thank uh, you. A, as in, in the biographer's world, you are uh, a very well-loved man. And well, so- uh, thank it, you very much. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to be posting this shortly. All right, talk to you later. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.